The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Angela Herrera Canfield, Director of Undergraduate Admissions in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. She is also a Cornell alum. We will chat with Angela about her journey through Cornell from a student to a staff member and how her own experiences have influenced her approach to creating an inclusive environment for all, including students and staff. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Sembrechase. And you're listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome, Angela. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Erin and I are so excited to have you here. I'm looking forward to hearing about your journey. And so as we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what pronouns you use, and your role here at Cornell? Absolutely. My name is Angela Reda Canfield. I go by she, her, hers. I um, am currently Director of Undergraduate Admissions in our School of Industrial and Labor Relations, ILR for short. And yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you again for inviting me. We're so happy to have you, Angela. And uh, it's so always nice to hear when you introduce yourself and what you do, because I mean, I knew Angela when she was an undergraduate wow. um, at Cornell, right? So you had quite a journey starting as an undergrad student, grad student, and then working your way up to a fancy director now. So it's really exciting. So yeah, tell us um, a little bit more for our listeners about what your relationship with Cornell has been, uh, how long you've been here and what that uh, evolution has been like. Yes, it's been a wonderful evolution, a wonderful experience. I feel very lucky and blessed in so many regards. But um, to start with, in 1999, I came as a first-year student all the way from El Paso, Texas, oh, uh, wow. which is the farthest city <laughs> west in Texas. Yep. I was a first-generation college student, a low-income student. Mm -hmm. I never visited Cornell before until I stepped foot wow. in orientation, yes, wow. uh, which I preach now, don't do those things. Right. But <laughs> back then, um, certainly it was a challenge for my family to, to bring me. But I graduated from Arts and Sciences in 2003. During that time as a student, I was very involved in residence life. I was a summer RA. I worked in the residence hall that I lived in, which was the Multicultural Living Learning Unit, one of the themed residential houses. And it was such a wonderful experience socially, professionally. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a challenging experience academically, for sure. There is no doubt about that, that that was a challenge. Um, during my time as a student, I was asked to join the residential sort of um, director's team as a junior when an assistant residence hall director had left. They asked me if I wanted to take on that role and lead the RAs in the dorm that I lived in, in the residence hall I lived in, and that was in McClue. And that led to other opportunities in residence life to be a director in summer session. And eventually, I really just loved higher ed. Mm -hmm. um, I also simultaneously did not want to go back to El Paso at the moment. I was still enjoying living in New York, uh -huh. sort of being independent. Um, and when I graduated after that experience of being a summer director, there was a position opened in the central admissions office, um, which we all know as undergraduate admissions. Mm -hmm. um, and it was admissions counselor for multicultural recruitment. Oh. And I just thought, like, how interesting Never had heard of anything like that. Yeah. Wow, I have something to say. 
and Mm -hmm. this could be a cool thing to do for a few years and then see what happens next and maybe get back to what I really wanted to do, which was policy analysis and Mm. government work. And um, that started my journey in admissions. In 2003, in September, I was hired as an entry-level admissions officer focused on diversity and and recruiting students who were like me. Mm -hmm. And the 20 years that I've been in admissions have passed quickly and furiously, and I've had amazing experiences, um, a master's degree as well. I took some time to do employee degree program. I feel very fortunate that I had some great mentors and advocates along the way, um, but I certainly feel like my 20-year reunion was this summer and oh, also wow. <laughs> my 20-year admissions celebration wow. sort of was also wow. this month. So yeah. 24 years at, in Ithaca and at Cornell, and it's been really wow. amazing, really amazing. That's amazing. So when, you, you know, just kind of focusing on your, on your initial move here, was that also your first experience of winter? Yes. <laughs> El Paso winters are like 40 degrees, some flakes that melt right away. Right. Everything shuts down because it's 40 degrees. Yeah, yeah right. It's like right. schools are closed for three Everything. days. Yeah. yeah. Everyone goes outside and wears these big puffy coats. And then it's over and you get back to like, you know, 50 and 50, 60. And then it gets into the hundreds, of course, in the summer. So certainly my, my roommate was from... Um, Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and she gave me a real lesson in layering right. and boots <laughs> and waterproofing things and buying the right coat because I brought one I found in the South, um, and so it was it was great. It was a, a beaut- It was such a different landscape that I was just in love with it. It reminded me of. So in the, in the desert, when you're from the desert and you see pine trees, you think of camping, right? right. So it reminded me of like going camping and yeah. pine and the smells. And it was so much fun. I had a really great first year uh, experience. I'll share that I come from Florida, so different type of trees down yes. there. And it's the same thing. Yes, it gives you all these pictures of things that you have in your mind. And yeah, even things like camping, you're like, I had no idea, <laughs> like, what that truly involves, right? <laughs> like, I can imagine it's what I see on TV or in the movies, and it's not the same. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Um, so I, I actually love this juxtaposition of the 20 years since your graduation, 20-year reunion, plus the 20 years here at Cornell. I think that's that's wonderful. Take us through that journey, right? And so how has your perspectives changed when you were undergrad to when you were a grad student to your full employment cycle as you moved up in the various positions that you've held? Yes, I think being a student employee, uh, especially in residence life, you are very encapsulated. You're very uh, sheltered in, you know, what it means to work. It's a job that was fun. I did programming and events and I brought people together. We had midnight breakfasts. You know, I was given a budget of money to spend, and it was, <laughs> it was fun, and I loved all of those things about residence life. Um, when I was an assistant residence hall director, that's when I met Erin when I was a senior, there was more responsibility, of course. I was supervising two resident advisors who were undergrads, and so I had to step up sort of my level of how I interacted with them as a supervisor. Also, still as a friend, because I was their friend, um, and we were still residence hall mates, but they had a job to do, and so did I. And so we had to, I had to learn how to lead my peers in a different way than just being the president of a club, which I think that's a different type of leadership. 
then you start to see sort of this profession within higher education. And that position opened up the door to me understanding that a university is this huge organization that has different jobs that serve the students, then serve the mission, that serve the financial status of the university. So you get this bigger understanding of where you fit into the puzzle. And you start to see that people have made this work their life blood, their career, their journey. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised by it and enamored with it because it was so many people cared about the students that I didn't realize as a student. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to to test the waters to see if I could do that as a, a profession um, for a while even. I thought it was something a young person could do and have a lot of fun with. The staff, the professional staff, were relatively young as well, and everyone had a great time, and it just seemed like a really fun thing to do. And graduating and going into sort of then a professional role as a hall director and then into admissions, then you start to see more things about the university and as an employer. And I think that I was very naive about a lot of things. I thought I could just work and work and work, and it'd be fun, fun, fun. But then you realize... (laughs) Your supervisor is going to give you feedback about everything. Mm. You mm. also are very fortunate to work at Cornell. And there's we could talk about that for a long time. Um, we are very fortunate. You also start to realize what you don't know um, and that other people who have been in a profession for longer, you should be counting on them. You should seek their support. And so that certainly grows as you are further into the field that you're in, I think. In any job family, I think you begin to learn, what do I have to do to grow and move up? Do I want to move up? You know, some people don't, and that's okay too. But I think you have to explore all those possibilities. And and at each step of the way, I really learned a lot about the university and as an employer. Yeah, what kind of really makes me think about when you just shared this is this idea that at every step, you're almost starting kind of over again and figure out how to kind of interact with your colleagues and what does this position do and how do I kind of move up and all of that. And then it seems like then you move on to the next position and you have to start that all over again. So that journey, what was that like for you? Yes, in admissions, I was very lucky that my growth was in diversity recruitment. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to take what I learned in each level and grow it a little bit and show my supervisors that I had ideas to make this even better, even stronger. Cornell's reach in places. I had ways to talk about Cornell that might be different from the rest of the staff, and we should utilize that in recruitment. Um, For example, I came up with a video with one of our current students um, who spoke Spanish to his mom, and he had to explain everything in Spanish to his mom about his Cornell experience. And we decided to record him talking to parents the way he talks to his mom. Mm. Oh, and, wow. it, and we sent it out to students and said, hey, if you want to send this to your family because they don't understand what college is, yeah. use it. Like, here's our student who does this with his mom feel free to share this with your mom and dad. Like maybe that can change their view about you going away to college or just a little more understanding. And so utilizing my personal experiences and how I spoke with students to make the role that I grew into deeper, more engaging and meaningful to me, which if you have great supervisors, they want you to do that with your role and they want you to 
grow and try things because you care, as opposed to you're trying to get ahead. I think that's where I was very fortunate that it meant something to me, this work, because it was me that I was helping. <laughs> yes. And they saw that passion. Yes. Now, I also did the work well, and I think that's something that staff members, you know, who are trying to move up and gain experiences, you have to do the work well, and you'll get recognized for that, and you'll get those opportunities, I think. Once I became director, you open your eyes to a lot more. Now you're talking about seeing the university from the cabinet's perspective, what the goals are, you're responsible for them, what your dean and the leadership in your school or college goals are. You have a set budget that you are responsible for. You have a team that is counting on you. You have to advocate for them. So it's not so much now about the passion of the work that I had when I first started, but now it's this bigger entity where I hope I'm making a difference, but it's in a different way, I think. Yeah, yeah. I love that, Angela. I, I'm just sitting here, even though I've known you a while, I just feel like I'm just so mesmerized by how you're describing your journey. And I keep thinking about young Angela stepping out, you know, onto Cornell's campus for the first time by herself, all the way from Texas, sight unseen, <laughs> you know, everything, and just how powerful as you said, you were low-income, Christian, and yet also full of dreams like anybody else, full of hopes, you know, about what college might be. And, and But like you said, maybe not having that same prior exposure, you know, because perhaps your family or your school that you went to, you know, just wasn't as aware of what this experience was like. And the fact that you have used that and then went on to use that in your position to probably open up, dare I say, your colleagues' eyes and, your, you know, your own supervisor eyes that, hey, we have this whole population of students and families who need to hear things differently, who need to see this differently than maybe how we're used to showing it or saying it and how powerful that is, you know? Yes. I felt very emotional about that journey. Mm -hmm. You know, I was uh, telling Toral that I feel very lucky. And I think a lot of staff members feel very lucky of where they are. But at the same time, I have to remember, I also earned it. I worked really hard. I I did extra. I, um, you know, came in for the students. I went the extra mile with the families. I stayed within the budget. I turned things <laughs> in on time. I went to, you know, I, I yeah. didn't let the other parts of my job slip through the cracks because I was so dedicated to the passion of the work. Mm-hmm. And I think supervisors recognize both of those things, and you have to do them both. Um, so, yes, it's been very humbling and I feel very lucky but at the same time I have to remember like I also worked really hard and I I'm in a great place in that journey right now because of that hard work I liked what you said earlier about it wasn't just about what you could do to make things better for yourself. It was about what can you do to make things better for this whole community, you know, um, of which students, families, the university are all part of. And I really think when that's the motivation, then, you know, much more amazing things happen, (laughs) you know, that really are for the better for everybody. And I wonder, Angela, you know, uh, because you've been at Cornell a long time, you know that for as long as we've been here and probably longer, 
those words, diversity, inclusion, equity, are words that, you know, we hear, we've heard. Um, I know prior to coming to Cornell, those were not words that I heard a lot in my prior jobs or schools, but, you know, it didn't take me long here to realize that's part of the everyday vocabulary <laughs> at Cornell, right? And so I'm curious what you perspectives on on how those concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, how those have evolved in your time here. What have you seen, you know, what have you experienced that, for better or worse, you know, whatever, I'm just curious what your perspective on, on how Cornell espouses those and what that ends up looking like and how that's evolved over your time here. It's evolved so much. Uh, when I was a student, there was one office with a small team of people who were dedicated to multicultural affairs. And my cohort was relatively big. It wasn't the cohorts that we have now of, of underrepresented students specifically of, of um, for lack of a better word in this podcast, we'll use minority students. Mm-hmm. That's what the term we used back then. Um, but it was a small group of staff who were staff of color, um, very few faculty, a handful, and they were stretched very thin because they supervised clubs that were student of color clubs. And people looked for them to help, you know, with their journey at Cornell. And so it was a very small community. And we, we really got to know each other. But I think we also demanded a lot of the university to expand those resources. And it has. It has expanded tremendously. The fact that we have a first-generation college office where a student can go and say, I need help. I don't understand this. And there's funds for them to get books or toiletries is remarkable. That's, that's remarkable progress. Slow, yes, but remarkable. And I am excited to think what the next few years can bring as we discover that other students need more support. Mm-hmm. Uh, students who have uh, neurodiversity concerns or needs. I think we're paying attention to students even more and to staff. I think the staff resources have grown tremendously. So I'm grateful and excited about that, um, certainly. I think the word diversity, though, (laughs) is thrown around a lot without clear definitions. And, And what are the goals around that? In my admissions experience, diversity really only at the beginning included students of color because numerically they were underrepresented at large institutions like Cornell and the Ivy League and and whatnot. Now that office and those positions that used to be dedicated only to underrepresented students of color now include first-generation college Mm -hmm. students, low-income students from all backgrounds. That's wonderful. But we need more staff to do all that work Mm -hmm. so that we can keep up each individual's group's growth. (laughs) You can't just throw all that in one bucket to a small team and say, figure this out and fix it. Right. Gosh, we need more resources for that. Um, So I I think fortunately and unfortunately, (laughs) it's grown for the better, but perhaps not enough support for the staff to do that type of work, if that makes sense. From, From my vantage point in admissions, at least, that's what I see. Yeah, I think that makes total sense, actually. I think that's very well put. You're right, because we have expanded what diversity means in a good way, but have we necessarily expanded the support and the resources at the same momentum? Eh, Not so much. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, and have the numbers of students in each of those categories continue to grow and continue to be nuanced in how we look at, let's just say, um, the Latinx population. Are we bringing students from my part of the country or... 
or not? Like, what are those individual things that we can look at to make sure that a lot of different voices are brought to Cornell and have access to Cornell? When you were talking earlier about the passion that you have for this work, right, and at the same time, the fact that you worked really hard to kind of get where you are, um, you and I talked a little bit earlier about the idea of some of that being imposter syndrome, right, and some of that being this idea that you want to make lives better for students who are who have a similar background as yourself, right? So the things that you didn't have, you don't necessarily want them to go through similar hardships. Like that has just been really resonating with me. It's very similar to kind of the journeys that I've taken in my life and the paths that I've taken is like, I want to do something that's a little bit better than maybe what I had so that somebody else doesn't have to struggle in a similar, similar manner. And, and some of the work that you talked about, especially that video with that student that clearly comes through, I can almost see you explaining to your parents in a similar manner that that student maybe had to explain to his mom um, and that it was very easy for you to come up with the idea that why don't we just record this so maybe it'll make somebody else's life a little bit easier and what an amazing gift to the parents right yeah. who who like my my parents I'm also a first gen and so my parents have never had this experience and so even when I explain it like if I don't use the right words they have no idea what some of this means or a lot of that that journey means um, and so it does take a lot of explaining it it took a lot of explaining on my part for them to understand some of the experiences that I was having at college. Yes, and it's it's not just what I have learned in how to do my job to the audiences that we serve, like high school students, guidance counselors, parents, um, that audience. But as I became a supervisor, I also became aware of how you need to train new staff members or new admissions officers or a new administrative professional to understand that those audiences have these different types of journeys so that when we all are together as a team and you represent Cornell and you represent me also as your supervisor, you're representing the training I have given you, that you are thinking about those nuances in that audience. As having gone through all of those experiences as a staff member with great mentors and great leaders and then thinking about what about those people made me excited to work with them and stay with them, how can I give that to my team? I am very cognizant of those opportunities to give new staff members to have that experience that I had as an early admissions officer. I love training. I love <laughs> thinking about introducing new professionals to this field of admissions. I have led trainings uh, for the state when new professionals get hired in admissions and in um, high school guidance. I've led teams of new professionals through rookie camp is what we call it, uh, <laughs> because it, it's so meaningful and powerful to give a new person in their first job, even if it's their first job, that experience of making a change and, and understanding your audience and even hearing their story and how they can incorporate it in their work. Um, it's so powerful. I, I really have enjoyed training new staff and, and meeting new staff and, and getting them excited about higher ed and then the profession. Um, it's been really a large part of why I stay uh, mm -hmm. in the role. What you describe, Angela, is making me think about, uh, you know, all the conversations I've had over the years with different managers and supervisors who 
really have trouble understanding, you know, how these concepts of equity and inclusion really fit into whatever they do, into their work. Like, you know, they could be working in IT, they could be working in hospitality, right? They could be working anywhere, building care. And when, when you present this idea of things like being inclusive, when you are a manager and a leader, they struggle sometimes. They don't mm-hmm. really see, well, what does that have to do with what we do? Everything you just said, Angela, is exactly what it has to do with that, right? Is that you have recognized that you need to adapt, you know, your style, your communication, your training, whether it's for the the customer, the client, or the person you're supervising. You have recognized that in order for them to really hear you, see you, see themselves in the work that you're doing, you have to adapt how you are um, communicating the goals and the messages and all that. That That is exactly what being inclusive means when you are a director, manager, or whatever. Yes, even within your own team. Yeah. There are things that you, as a, as a group and as a team and as a, a leader of a team, even within that group of people, there is so much difference and so much unspoken yeah. right? histories right. and personal journeys that they've gone through. And the more adaptable and open you are to hearing those journeys or giving someone some grace and thinking perhaps this has something to do with something they've been through and I'm not going to react immediately because they don't do it the way I want or they said something that wasn't correct. Like what led them? It's just about giving everyone a little bit of of grace and time. And, And I think because I work in admissions and I meet so many students from all backgrounds, all language, um, family <laughs> experiences, mm-hmm. different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different income levels. Every understanding they have of higher ed is is different. And I I have learned to pull it out of them with questions and their experience and also give people grace when they need it um, because they're not going to know everything in this very challenging <laughs> right. journey called the college experience, right? Like that, that's impossible for people to know. So yeah, I think my profession lends itself to inclusion very well. <laughs> so it's been easy to train people, but it's, of course, something I think all managers need to think about, like you mentioned, you know, in the trainings. I do want to say, though, you said that your field lends itself to inclusion. And I don't sell yourself short, Angela, because, you know, it, it just like any field, it could have the potential to be very transactional. You know, here's Cornell. This is what you need to do to get in. This is what, you, you know, here's all the paperwork. Here's the process. Okay, here you go. But you haven't done that. You you have recognized that it shouldn't just be this transactional thing. And even for the things that need to be, you've recognized that, again, people need the information in different ways in order to participate in that process and in that business. Yes. And I think one of the things I've also learned as a supervisor along the way is you have to keep your ear to the ground. And I think when you become a director or when you are leading something that is uh, many steps from the audience, you know, the the audience could be current students, the audience could be alumni, the audience could be the college students um, or high school students. If you don't keep your ear to the ground, you will fall into that transactional sort of, hmm, you've lost touch with what students need. You are coming up with things that really the students aren't really excited about anymore. Um, And I think that could be hard because high school students these days are changing really fast. They are affected by 
things that happen in the world. Right. And it changes that generation very quickly. And we have to keep our ear to the ground. Even at my level, I feel like my fellow directors, people who are above me, of course, to hear what they're saying. And I think as a manager, the managers who don't just tell people what to do, but also show them how to do it and are engaged in the everyday work as well are better leaders and your team trusts that you understand what you're talking about. And so if I expect you to come in on Saturday to give sessions, I am also coming in on Saturdays to give sessions. If I want you to walk a family, I will also walk the next family. We are going to learn from these experiences together so that we can support our audience's needs even better. And I think, unfortunately, some managers have so much to do that is the paperwork side and the transactional side. They might not have the opportunity to keep their ear to the ground, but that I think that can make a team dynamic really functional and really generate great ideas from that. And also, I think you build trust in a lot of those instances from your team and also from the people who are taking your word as, you know, you're giving me this advice, I'm going to follow it because you, you know what you're talking about. You've seen that in parts of the country, students don't have, still don't have an AP curriculum. And you've talked to the guidance counselor there who has a caseload of 800 and can't even meet with the top 10. Like, wow. you know what you're talking about. And I, I must a firm believer in that, um, keeping your ear to the ground. I love the idea of, and I, I guess it's such a simple concept, right? Like walking the walk and talking the talk um, idea. And so, and I actually would love to hear more about how how you keep that year to the ground. Um, as you said, you know, you were now 20 years away from being a student and things are changing on a regular basis for this new generation, new population that's coming into the, the universities. And so how do you keep up with what's happening and, and change all of your tactics to each new generation as, they, as they've come through the, the universities or the admission? cycles. Yes, uh, which also leads to another great tip for supervisors. Many professions in higher ed have national organizations mm -hmm. or a professional development organization that keeps the organization philosophy and values. And we have one in admissions uh, called the National Association of College Admissions Counseling. Within that, there are chapters across the country uh, there's even an international chapter. And in New York State, we have a chapter, and I'm actually on the executive board right now for that. And it brings together guidance counselors from the high schools, nonprofit college counselors. So there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nonprofit organizations across the country that support college awareness, college access, and their mission is to bring underserved populations into the college space and, and get them access to, to us, you know, access to the college. And it brings those individuals together and the admissions teams, the staff. Um, and it's up to the college, the university, to say, like, you should go to this meeting. You should go to this conference. You should go and learn from the people who are with the students every day what they're going through. Ask them how COVID changed their socialization. Mm. Ask them how are they as a, as a counselor surviving. You know, them as, as a profession, like... Ugh, they're also struggling. And so you keep your ear to the ground through your colleagues and listening and showing that you can come out of Cornell and hear what they're saying and come up with solutions that can make their lives easier. That is a huge, huge win when you can be not just the gatekeeper of Cornell, but also the person that listens and, and opens the gate and invites people in through those professional development organizations, I have really learned a lot. And I have utilized my colleagues' feedback and experiences with Cornell and with college 
to do my work better and to bring it back to my team to try different things. Um, the other way is that we employ a lot of student workers. Wow. Student workers, they love giving their opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Not only do they like to be photographed for brochures and the website, yeah. they love giving their opinion, which I would have as well if you asked me. Um, with a little pizza and a mm. little swag, you can get a lot of great feedback about what their college journey was like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, did you ever hear from Cornell? Did we email you? Did you get a brochure? You know, what was another university's tactic that worked well for you and your family? And you can start to understand how the spectrum of access is vast and deep and challenging. And maybe you can only chip away at one thing, you know, this year. And maybe next year you tackle something else, but you utilize the current students as much as possible because every student has a different experience with the college journey, the college, you know, application journey. And so what I really liked about what you just said now, but it ties back to something you said early on, which is it sounds like one reason why you, a big reason why you got into the admissions field is because you saw an opportunity to help. You didn't say it quite this way, but how I heard it was you saw an opportunity to help the younger version of you. The you that maybe didn't have that same level of access and support um, and had to figure it out all by yourself. And so now you're in a field where you can really change that and make that a little bit easier for the next generation and, and so forth. And you also talked about that. It sounds like it's also why things like having mentors and advocates has been so important to you. So I'd like to hear more about that, like from your perspective, what are some of the things that you think are just fundamental to being a mentor, um, you know, for, for others, particularly others that might not have that same level of access? Why is that so important and, and what does that look like? Yes, uh, I've had some really great mentors who have been my supervisor. And I think a lot of what they did was recognize hard work. They valued my opinion because I brought it to the table when asked for those moments to brainstorm. I also offered to do whatever I was giving the team as a, as yeah. a suggestion. You uh -huh. know, you can't just throw out all these ideas and then be like, someone else needs to figure that out. Good mm -hmm. luck. Like, right. no, let me help also think through how we can make it work or do it within a small budget or whatever the case might be. And I think when someone is willing to do that, a leader, a mentor, a supervisor recognizes that and wants to give you that lane to to try and to fail, really, because you could fail. But the fact that they trust that you are going to work hard to do it means that they trust you. I also have had great mentors who've looked out for me along the journey and showed me opportunities that I didn't know existed. And I think that is having a position on executive boards outside of Cornell to learn about the profession in a different light. Uh, once you step outside of Cornell and you realize how lucky we are financially and our application volume, we're very lucky for all these things, like we're great. You know, we have a lot of great things going on for us. Other universities are not in our same standing and they're struggling or they might not have as much funding or not as much staff. And it opens your eyes also to appreciate what you have and to take back to your team and to your mentor. I learned a lot. Like, thank you for this opportunity because I actually learned I can do more with what I have. I can make a difference in a different way. Maybe we don't have to do it in this one way because Cornell's doing great here, but let me do it with the small population. Let me do it with these students. Um, so I think a great mentor gives you that opportunity to see things beyond where you're sitting. And, and see things around you 
from a different vantage point so that you can be appreciative of where you are and what you need to learn still. Uh, I think that's the other thing. Towards my departure of leaving the admissions office and going into ILR as director, um, my mentors really encouraged me to apply. I was looking at the time for positions that were still with underserved communities. I wanted to keep that work. I wanted to do that, whether it was in the high school or at a nonprofit. It was what made me really excited about admissions, and I wanted to keep that. And they really helped me understand that I had a very unique voice for Cornell, that I could offer a lot to stay as an alum, as an alum of color, as someone who has been out there in the communities talking about Cornell. And they helped me with my application to the director positions that were open at the time. They practiced with me to talk about the things that I had learned in my journey that I didn't even realize I had learned. Yeah like inclusion, like how to support new staff, yeah. uh, like how to deal with conflict. I had dealt with many unique situations on the employee side with other staff members. Those experiences make you a really strong supervisor. You know how to tackle challenges head on, deal with difficult situations, have difficult conversations with your team, bring people who are not doing the work that they need to on and, and find ways, creative ways to help them do their best work. And they helped point that out to me. And I never even, again, you know, you, re you don't realize you're doing all this until someone helps and says, like, do you understand? <laughs> what yeah. you, let's put this on your resume, like, for real. And let's yeah. sit down and talk about <laughs> how much you know and that you're an expert in these things. And it was wonderful. I, I am grateful for them all the time because of, of that, pulling that out of you. And I think a great supervisor will. They'll show you, look at where you've come. Look at what you've learned. That should go on your resume because that means something to people. So, yes, I, I hope that staff members are finding opportunities to find mentors that might not be their supervisor. Perhaps it's someone in another office or in another area, but a great mentor can make this journey just that more amazing. I can't tell you how many times I've had a similar conversation. So our audience knows that before kind of I, I came into this DEI field, I used to be in recruiting and this exact same conversation about people that sell themselves short because of, you know, when, when I look at the resume and I was like, but I know you and I know you've done all this other stuff. So where is that on your resume? And it's like people don't even realize that this work that they've done it's actually great work. And they just think, oh, that's just because that's just what I do, right? And I don't think, they don't think to highlight that. So it's this exact same conversation. I'm so glad you mentioned it because I can't tell you how many times I've had yeah. the same thing. It's a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah. I was just going to say that. It's yeah. a little bit yep. of a first gen, like, yep. Yep. oh, is this true? Am I am I doing too much? Like, yep. am I uh, too much than what it really yeah. is? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of, hum like, working with humility. There's sometimes too much that you can, you know, yeah. be too humble <laughs> about, like. And um, as a staff member, I'm not sure that we're really ever trained on how to celebrate your success yeah. or how to talk about all the skills that you have. Mm -hmm. I think some people just think, well, I'm naturally good with people. Yeah. I'm naturally a good presenter. Like some people are, some people are. No, no, you practice. You practice. Some people give you feedback and you get better and you get better and you get better. And I think that's worth helping someone bring out on their resume if they are leaving or planning to leave or to say like, you've mastered a lot of this this year. What haven't you mastered and how can I support you? Okay, you, you want to figure out how to run a budget? Let's come up with a pretend budget and I'm going to have you function within it and I'm going to give you some experience to understand what it means to manage a budget. 
you know, so I think as a team member, as an employee and a, and a supervisor, being creative of helping people figure out what they need to work on um, and how I can help them find that experience in our own team or maybe in a bigger team uh, or with my colleagues in another office. I think that can also show great mentorship. The fact that you talk with somebody about, well, let's talk about what else you, you need to learn and want to learn. I think that there's so much there that's key. And, and yes, when you, I was thinking the same thing about when we don't do that as well, when we don't speak up about uh, and kind of recognize what we can do well and where we've grown, that there could be some of that imposter syndrome going on there. And also that we haven't, as you said, been taught to do it. And we just know from research that there are also different populations, <laughs> you know, who don't get taught that in the same way as others might. You know, we don't have that same level of access. Women aren't always as good at calling attention to the things that they do, depending on what your cultural background is, your family background. You know, you're not maybe not as good at celebrating your independent successes because it's more about, oh, no, we all did it together, right. as opposed to, no, I did this and I had to own this. And, so, and I also agree that we have to, we need people that are willing to say, to ask us, where do you want help? Where do you want to grow? But it has to be both, because I do think sometimes it can be too easy to focus on what don't I know? What do I still need to learn? What don't I know? What am I not good at? And we forget to also highlight the things that we are good at, like I said, and to recognize where the skills are and where the strengths are. But it does take mentors, you're right, or at least good colleagues, right? People paying attention, you know, to maybe make that effort to to point that out to one another. And I think particularly at Cornell, where everything is so fast-paced, so, you know, focused on the bottom line and, and doing, 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 we don't stop enough to celebrate who's doing it yes. <laughs> and what it is that they're doing well. You know, right. we're just always looking at the next thing that has to be done. Yeah. One of the best learning experiences I had was doing um, Harold Craft. Mm -hmm. And that was very early, maybe in 2009, when I came back from my master's program to supervise the team that I had started on. And at that time, my mentors and supervisors gave me those supervisor opportunities to learn from other supervisors and also just to expand your knowledge about employee relations. And mm -hmm. gosh, I learned so much about myself. In and that's health. a leadership program, Yes, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. And I learned that I was an extreme introvert. Yeah. <laughs> and really? Yes, very much so. Wow. And... Um, I liked to take things in and not speak immediately. I do not like talking about myself. And so this has been challenging today, too, <laughs> but I am pumped myself up for it. <laughs> but what was most interesting to me, what I learned most is that the team you lead and those individuals, they also have a preferred learning style. They have a preferred praise style. Mm. They have mm -hmm. a preferred management style. And so while I enjoy quiet time first thing in the morning with my tea, some of my colleagues might need your attention to say, how was your weekend? What did you do? And it takes two minutes out of my day to say, like, what was your weekend like? What interesting thing did you do? And to them, that shows that you care. And I didn't even realize that praise and attention mm -hmm. could be just important as feedback in the work. That can bring inclusion and belonging into your team in such a dynamic way. And you don't learn, I, I don't think as a supervisor, unless you do some sort of those exercises like right. your strengths. Um, gosh, we did all those great exercises about leadership. Yeah. That I, I really took that back to my leadership style and management 
and changed how I interacted with some of my team who needed more woo. (laughs) (laughs) They needed more, you know, personal stuff. And it was hard for me, but I had to do it to make that person feel more included and part of the team and, and happy in their job. And so I, you know, I think as supervisors, we have to think about those things as well and, and sometimes set our own discomfort on mm-hmm. the, yeah. <laughs> to the side um, to do things that the whole team needs to stay engaged and excited. And some people really like uh, a dish to pass at lunch once, you know, once a month or, you know, little things can go such a long way. You just don't even know until you try them. Those are great examples, Angela. Those are great examples. And again, I go back to what I said earlier, which is that is inclusive leadership. (laughs) That is inclusive supervision, is recognizing that. And and the fact that you were able to make that connection, oh, this is what I need. But now that I'm supervising people, I have to be more aware of what they each need. And that's going to look a little different. might make me a little uncomfortable. And it might mean I have to have my morning tea a little earlier than I normally do so, yes. so that I can be ready for them when they show up and want to talk my ear off. Uh, yes. <laughs> but again, that, that is inclusive leadership. Yeah. yeah. No, and I've been very grateful, I think, how Cornell as a, as a university has really expanded as well what praise and recognition is for the staff here. Um, I am actually on the Cornell Recreation Committee uh, where we put together the bus trips and cornhole and bowling. (laughs) And I think that's another way that you can build belonging because you're showing people that I value you. I want you to have a break. It's a tough time everywhere. Let's come and let's pay for, you know, for bowling for an hour and come hang out and, and meet some people you would have never met otherwise. Um, and I think those little things, I mean, they might not be little to the university, but to a staff member, just seeing those opportunities can also say like, wow, I can't do it today, but maybe next time I'll participate. That has evolved tremendously. And I, I, I think the people who are coming up with unique ways to recognize staff because we know it can't always be financial. And so are there other things that we can do? I love employee day. I used to volunteer uh, when we would have the big lunch and go to a football game and bring my family. And gosh, that was such a great way to meet fellow staff members and and have a meal and, and be at Cornell in a stress-free environment. When you Is that can, possible? It is possible. <laughs> and you ha- But you have to find it, right? You, you really do. You really have to <laughs> yeah. leave your work. And say, I'm going to come back on Saturday and I'm just going to enjoy the fact that I work here. I know these great people. I can take my team, my family to a game and we can support the students. And it's going to be just a beautiful day of being on campus and I'm going to enjoy campus. For much of my journey, I was working, working, working for Cornell, for Cornell, you know, giving it to students, telling them all about how great it is. But then if you lose why you feel it's great. It gets harder. And so I intentionally joined CRC for that. I intentionally volunteer for things that are not about admissions and and student services because I think it brings joy back into why this is such an amazing place in general, not just for employers or for students. It's just an amazing place. And so, yeah, you got to give yourself some of those moments to reconnect with Cornell, (laughs) you know, in a a one-to-one way. (laughs) 
I will try to learn from you. I admit <laughs> I'm one of the people that goes home and stays home and is like, yeah, I don't need to be at this place again till Monday. You know, yes. but you're right that it does. Um, I think it doesn't matter where you work. It, 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 if we lose that opportunity to find some of the joy, we're only focused on the work and not on appreciating why we're doing the work, you know, why we're where we're at. And it, you end up losing some of that motivation. So I think you make a good point about expanding how we get, how we re-energize yes. and get that motivation. And you also see people in a different light. When mm-hmm. I volunteered at the employee day, when you see everyone with their families, it reminds you that my everyday interaction with this person, they have other responsibilities. Perhaps that could be some of the reasons, like you said, that they do things the way they do. They say things the way they say. So it gives you a, a great reminder of the humanity of the people that are around you all the time. You know, you spend so much time with everyone in your workplace. They have other lives they're going to. And, and sometimes seeing them in that, it's a good reminder, like, hey, I, I care about these people. I, I really want to help them in their journey. And it's because they have families and they care about the work too. So... Well, and I think that there is, you know, some sentiment nowadays that because of COVID and because of a lot of the turmoil that's going on in our world and in our country, there is definitely a decrease in that ability to see humanity and to see the human side of people. And and now that we are in more of a hybrid, remote-type work situation, there's less opportunity, as you said, to see the, the whole person. And there's more fear and discomfort around getting to know the whole person. You know, particularly if you've already had a negative interaction with somebody, you might be like, well, I don't know that I want to know <laughs> anything more. And, if we don't have those opportunities, we're losing our ability just to connect. And then to build some connection, trust, and rapport to get us through the hard times, to get us through those disagreements, those debates, that sort of thing. Um, so I think that what you're saying is really important. It's time for all of us to rethink, you know, if, if we want to be less lonely and we want to be able to get along with people who are different, then we might have to rethink how we do that, you know, how we stretch ourselves to see them as whole people. Yes. Yes. I think one of the great things um, we've done in ILR, we have a lot of extension staff who don't live in Ithaca. Um, We have staff in New York City, staff in Buffalo, and our leadership has been very intentional about, you know, uh, when we have the big team meetings or the big staff events that, you know, we pay for a bus and we bring people to campus. Mm -hmm. They deserve Mm -hmm. to be a part of our community. Maybe it doesn't happen every single time, but when you make that effort, you connect people one-on-one and and you get to meet them face-to-face that we lose in Zooms and all that kind of stuff. Um, So I think there are creative ways to include people who work remotely. It's it's just, it takes work. It takes time to do that. Um, So I've I've been very grateful that I've seen that happen in ILR quite a bit. I kind of like, you know, this whole conversation has been this like two different sides of of kind of the work that you do. One is like the admissions work, right, which is is kind of the the core, all the work related to the students. And then you have this work that you do that that you speak so highly of and so passionately about is the work that you do with your own team um, and within your own college. It's kind of it's it's what we call the people management skills. Right. And those are and yet like it, this is completely different work. And the way you describe and the way your passion comes through is that both of them are equally as important. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a supervisor, it has to. It has to be equal. It has to be harmonious as much as possible. Of course, you're going to have road bumps and you're going to have personality challenges and you might even have challenges in maybe the wrong fit for someone. You might have someone who just doesn't fit in the role or in the space that you, you know, that you manage. Um, 
but it has to be harmonious as a supervisor. I think otherwise you'll get distracted with too much transaction or fail at that and not do your, your other work will right. suffer. Um, so I, I do really try to find that sweet spot of my team is very important. Their development is my success. Their passion for the field is also my success. I'm building future people's interest in this career that I love so much. Maybe that's my legacy is that I'm helping people find that this could be their passion too. Um, and that motivates me to, to be a good team leader. Well, I think that that's a good place to end yeah, <laughs> this yeah. conversation, personally. I think those are excellent parting words um, and a reminder to anybody out there who is a leader, aspiring to be a leader. But I think also, even if you're not in a, you know, in a position of leadership, right? Like, we all have the, the ability to do what you're talking about. All the things that you, we have, the ability to do it for our coworkers, for our customers, our students, whoever. And just to think a little bit differently about how we are helping to shape, with each person, we're helping to shape a greater community and a greater good, which I think is so important. Thank you so much, Angela. You're welcome. This was a lot of fun, and I, I just love talking about these topics. Well, that was a great conversation with Angela. It was really, really nice to learn some new things about her, but also to just to hear her perspectives from having been a student and knowing her as a student and now, you know, seeing her as a director. It's just really interesting to just to hear how her own perspectives have both evolved but also influenced how she does her work and how she approaches some pretty challenging things in her job. It was really interesting. Yeah. I think it was actually great for me to hear that even though you two know each other, that there were things that you actually found out about her oh, that yeah. you didn't know before. So that was kind of neat, too. Yeah, definitely. No, I had no idea um, that she was a first-gen student, mm -hmm. um, low-income. I knew she was from Texas and, yeah. you know, definitely had come to Ithaca and stayed, you know. Um, yeah. But, no, it was really... It was really interesting to think about that, you know, what her experience, particularly because when I met her, she was already like a senior yeah. at that point, right? So I didn't know her her first few years as a student. So I just think it was incredibly powerful to hear how that could not have been easy for her. And she never forgot that and used it, you know, to influence changing the experience. I have no doubt for many, many more students who came after her yep. uh, and when she started working in emissions. I just think that's really powerful. I agree. I think that, that was a great part of that conversation. I loved hearing about that video that she made mm -hmm. with that student because I thought, you know, what a simple thing. Mm -hmm. And yet I bet I made a huge difference in the lives of so many other students and their parents. I, you know, I also think those examples that she gave and her own experiences really help illustrate why we have individuals, offices, efforts, initiatives that are focused on serving underrepresented mm -hmm. minority populations. If this really is going to be an institution where, you know, any person can find any study, which is what we love to espouse about Cornell, you can't just assume everybody's going to find a way here on their own and be able to navigate this environment on their own. You Correct. can't assume that because everybody's path is different and where they're starting from is different. And so we need people who are going to go to them yep. and make the information and the opportunity accessible to them. 
how do you end up doing, you know, whether you're successful or not is a whole other story. Right. It's, it's about having the access. That's correct. It's like, how do you level that playing field? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there were things that she shared about her own life. Like when she mentioned that, you know, this is the first time that she'd been, you know, to New York. She didn't even visit Cornell before she yes. um, she accepted. She's never experienced winter before yes. she came here. Right. Like a true winter, like an Ithaca winter is what I'm actually referring to uh, before she came here. And. You know, there's so many of us that don't have that same experience, right? right? And so how how do we level that playing field for somebody that has a different background, different experiences than we do? And I thought she shared some great examples. Um, well, and I think it's just about, it's not even just about leveling the playing field. It's recognizing that your first, even just your first three months yeah. are going to be very different if you're like her who never got to visit, never got to see anything, versus a student who maybe is a third-generation Cornell student, right. right? And has, you know, come here, you know, for years to sporting events. And, you know, they're not going to need the same type of experience you know, information and exposure and access is somebody who didn't have that is going to need. And it isn't about not giving one or the other. It's about recognizing that, oh, you don't need this, but they do. Yeah. And and she really talks about, like, you know, the residence hall directors and the influence that they have Mm -hmm. with students. But I also really like the fact that she talked about her roommate a little bit, right? And that some of that uh, that mentorship came from her own roommate in terms of how to shop for winter. And this little jacket that you brought with yourself from Texas is not going to help you here yeah, um, yep. and so so just where some of this information might come from it's not necessarily only individuals here at Cornell or you know employees of Cornell but other other students as well that might help influence mm-hmm. what your experience what your experience is like here mm-hmm. yeah totally agree with that and I, I think that clearly you know she reminded us of the importance of when other people do take the time to show interest in you, to support you, to help you, to mentor you. I think that sometimes if you are somebody who does that, you might even underestimate how much mm-hmm. you know, how much positive influence that can have on somebody else when yeah. you you know, um I remember last year reaching out to some people and inviting them to participate in a in a committee with me. And of course my immediate thought was is that everybody's gonna say no because <laughs> everybody's overworked and nobody has time to take on something extra. And sure enough, seventy five percent of the people did say that. But there was one person who said, I am so honored that you're asking me to join this effort. I feel so seen. And I remember being so taken aback and realizing that yeah, for that person they maybe haven't had the same opportunities that all the people who said no <laughs> have already had, and you know, too many opportunities. And it was a reminder to me to expand who I'm looking at and mm-hmm. who I'm looking for to maybe bring along and to help along that journey. Yeah, and a story that reminded me in my own personal life was a slightly different, not necessarily work related. It was an you know personal story. It's I have I have this little cousin who uh, I when I was going in college, she was like six or five or six mm-hmm. years old, um, and I you know I was taking a, a child psychopathology class, my undergrad major being psychology, and I learned this tidbit that I still take to heart, and it's literally like if you give a child your undivided attention for five minutes, they will remember it for the rest of their oh. life. And so whenever I used to go home, I made sure that I would sit there and read with her mm-hmm. and it was just an, you know because she was struggling learning how to read and I would just read with her and when she graduated high school she's like yeah I will never forget that you taught me how to read Oh, and wow. in reality, I didn't. Like, yeah. she already knew how to read. I just read with her. Um, but it's just the, the amount of influence you can have in somebody's life. And yeah. again, it was like every three or four weeks, once a month when I went home, and I just made sure that I gave her that time. I think people, we underestimate how important that could be yeah. um, in creating a solid team. And then, therefore, 
creating better work. Yeah. And we talked about that with her, right? The idea that the admissions work is just as important as her management work. Yeah. Right. And, and and that like one doesn't take precedence over mm-hmm. the other. The work she does with students is, is phenomenal and it's needed for this university. But how she leads the team that does that work yes. is equally as important. Right. Yes. And her efforts, I feel like she did a really great job about talking about how she splits that effort. Yeah, exactly, because uh, she has recognized if she doesn't do that well with her staff, then they're not going to do right. it well with the students, <laughs> right. right? So it, it makes a lot of sense when you think of it that And where way. does that leave that student's experience? Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Well, great conversation, um, and I, uh, I hope that our listeners got some good takeaways like we did, mm-hmm. and I look forward to the next conversation, as I always. I too, definitely. It was a great conversation, and we want to thank Angela for joining us again. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Erin Sambushase. And my name is Toral Patel. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert!